Welcome to the Vineyard Church Weekly Message Podcast. We hope you will be encouraged and challenged today as you listen to a message from one of our speakers. Prepare your heart and get ready to receive a word from God today. Well, hello everybody. I'm Steve Huffman. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at the church. It's good to see you. That's awful kind of you. Super nice. Also want to welcome those joining online. Thanks for tuning in. I want to start the message. Was it something I said? I want to start the message uh, today from the, uh, I want to take us back to the 15th century. Who remembers the 15th century? (laughs) Somebody just pointed to their wife. (laughs) Good luck. Good luck on that later. Uh, 15th century. Uh, 15th century, there was a man and his name was Andrea Verrocchio. Anybody uh, hear the name Andrea Verrocchio? Anybody familiar with that? It's a name that really isn't familiar now, but from the stories that I read, uh, this name, especially in Florence, Italy, would have been a name that would have been referenced very frequently because he was a well-known artist and sculptor of the time. He painted some incredible paintings. He had a a Renaissance style that was very lifelike. And the rulers of the day would actually commission him to make or sculpt different things. He was so uh, famous, in fact, he had a school. And on one occasion, uh, a dad brought his 14-year-old to Verrocchio's studio and his school and and, uh, introduced him to his son, And his son asked Verrocchio a question, something like this. Will you teach me how to do that, how to paint? And so Verrocchio took this 14-year-old boy and hired him as a, it was called back then a studio boy. The studio boy would clean up the studio, but also be used as a sort of a model for some of the paintings, while he also learned how to paint. And after three or four years spending time with Verrocchio, this young teenager grew in skill to the point that Verrocchio invited him to paint a painting with him. And so here's the painting from Verrocchio. The majority of that painting, Verrocchio painted himself. But on the lower left, there's two angels. Verrocchio painted the angel on the right. Then the teenager painted the angel on the left. That teenager was Leonardo da Vinci. He learned some things from Verrocchio, didn't he? But it started with a question. Can you teach me how to do that? It's such a powerful question. Can you teach me how to do that? If I think about that question in my own life, I can't paint. But I've used that question several times. One time I remember uh, I was uh, very young and a family friend came over to our house, picked up three things, started juggling. That was kind of cool. Saw him juggling and I said, hey, can you teach me how to do that? And over the course of a couple of minutes, he gave me some some fundamentals to to try and I was able to do it. The next day, I can actually, I'm not going to do it today because I'm not an expert juggler and I don't have time in the message, but wouldn't that be cool, blah, blah, blah. Right? I learned how to juggle, but it started with, can you teach me how to do that? When I was in college, I have a business degree and, and, uh, I was learning accounting. I didn't love accounting. It didn't come easy for me. And so I actually went to someone. That was their job. And I said, can you teach me how to do this? And it was so much easier. There's power in that question. 
if I make a spiritual shift in the room, there's power for me in this question, even when I started to read the Bible, when I was in my 20s, when I became a Christian, I started to read scripture and there's, there's just confusing things in here. And so as I was reading and going through various books, I had questions, and so I went to someone, and I said, can you just show me, can you teach me how you study the Bible, because I've got some questions, and it was super helpful. Can you teach me how to do that? You know, that's a question, actually, the disciples asked Jesus. I mean, think about this for a second. Think about if you're a disciple, and you get to spend three years with Jesus himself, I mean, this guy could preach a sermon. Even the thought of him preaching, people from towns would come and and just sit at his feet to listen to his eloquent sermons. He He would go to people and raise them from the dead. Like, if you could ask Jesus one question, what would you ask him? Would it be like, can you tell me about your public speaking skills? Because that's incredible. You know what the disciples asked him? asked him this, Luke 11, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Isn't that interesting? They could ask him anything, and they asked him one thing, teach us to pray. There was something about the prayer life of Jesus that was different. We see this in Scripture, Mark 1.35, it says, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Jesus would very often, early in the morning, before other people woke up, he would get up and he would go off by himself, he would pray, and then the other people would wake up and they're like, where's Jesus? And they'd have to go find him, and he's just been praying all morning. Luke 6 says this way, One of those that One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. His his prayer life was, was just different. And when he would come back from praying, big things would happen. He, he would tell him, you know what, we need to move on from this town. Even though people need to hear from me, we need to go to this other town. He, during the day, he would do amazing things and miraculous things. And they realized the connection to his prayer life. The disciples wanted to know, Jesus, how do you pray? Teach us how to do that. Now to be clear, the disciples were Jewish. They knew how to pray. They had grown up learning prayers to recite. They grew up in groups praying. They knew how to pray, but something was different. And they wanted it. And I was thinking about that as I was preparing this message, as I was thinking about this series, and it really sort of struck me deeply. I wonder if we're living at a time right now in the craziness of the world, in the complexities of life, where some of us know how to pray, where some of us have grown up with some sort of prayer, or some of us have heard about prayer. I wonder if we're living at a time where we need to go back and reestablish and learn and ask the same question that the disciples, who already knew how to pray, but they saw something different and asked the question, Lord, teach us to pray. I wonder if we need to do that again today. See, as Christians, prayer is not an optional activity. It's something that all throughout Scripture, it says that we should be 
doing regularly, not just a reactive exercise when something goes wrong. Those prayers are fine. Problem in my life, I now pray. But that shouldn't be our only prayer style. A woman by the name of Corey Tenboom, she grew up during World War II, and her family, who loved the Lord, she was a woman of prayer, they would help Jews escape from the Holocaust. And she was a woman of prayer, and she shares a question regarding prayer that still convicts me today, and the question is this. Is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? I'm going to let that sit for a minute. Too often in my life, it's a spare tire. It's what I run to when something's wrong. But it's, it should be something where our hands are constantly on. Prayer is an expression of conversation with the creator of the universe. It's an honor to pray. But I wonder if we need to reestablish prayer in our lives, reignite that fire to pray again, because the resources of heaven are at hand. E.M. Bounds, he was a pastor long ago. He, he had this quote regarding prayer, and I think it's as relevant then as it is today. Maybe you'd argue with me, but here's what he says. He says, few Christians have anything but a vague idea of the power of prayer. Fewer still have any experience of that power. The, the church seems almost wholly unaware of the power of God, puts in their hand this spiritual carte blanche on the infinite resources of God's wisdom and power is rarely, if ever, used. Never used to the full measure of honoring God. It's astounding how poor the use, how little the benefits. Prayer is our most formidable weapon, but the one in which we are the least skilled and most averse to its use. Does anybody agree with that? I think we are living at a time where the things that we're trying to grab onto are not working, and the very thing that would help the most is prayer. Which is why when I was thinking about and praying about this service, we're starting a new series called When We Pray because we really fundamentally believe we need to reignite this passion of prayer. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be diving into how Jesus teaches us to pray. Now, I know that some in the room might be like, oh, wow, another service on prayer and series on prayer. Here's what I really deeply believe. It doesn't matter your prayer experience from zero to you've You've been praying for decades. There are things that we need to learn again to reignite a passion of prayer in our lives, especially at times like today. We're going to do that today in Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 6, it's Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount. It's a great sermon. It's his first public sermon. It's amazing. And in it, at the very beginning, he shares two things before he shares the Lord's Prayer. Some of you might know the Lord's Prayer. Before he shares sort of the model of the Lord's Prayer, he shares two important things. I want to highlight these today. Matthew chapter 6, two verses. Starting in verse 5, Jesus says this, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. 
then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. It's two verses. And in those two verses, I see a couple of things that I'm learning afresh about prayer that's helping me. And I want to share those, but before I do, I'm going to invite us to stand, which is a little odd. But when we kick off new series, many times we stand to pray for the series and for the message today. So thanks for standing. So let me pray. Will you pray with me? So Father, we need you. I pray that the next few weeks as we dive into prayer that you would help us to engage. That you would help us deep in our heart to reestablish, reignite re-understand the power of prayer. It's the tool you've chosen for connection, and so God, I pray that anyone listening, you would open our hearts, our ears, and our minds to what you're saying. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Thanks for standing. Here's what I see in these two verses that can help us with prayer. Rewarding prayer comes from, first thing is closing the door. Closing the door. You can write that on your program if you'd like. Closing the door. When Jesus starts sharing about what we should do when we pray, he begins by talking about hypocrites, which is a little odd, but there were people of that day who would go out on street corners or go in the synagogue, and they would very loudly start praying, and they would use all sorts of words. The more words they used, the better they thought. And they did that to gather an audience. And what Jesus says in Matthew 6 is this, but when you pray, go into your room and close the door. Jesus is clarifying that when you pray, there's an audience of one, and that's between you and God. I personally love that a lot. I enjoy my time with God in the morning, deeply, but I don't love this verse just because of that. I love it because of what I have found in the Bible regarding go to a private place in your room and close the door and pray. I want to share with you some important scriptures, there's quite a few of them, all throughout scripture, that highlights that this just wasn't a sentence or a verse from Jesus. This is a biblical, fundamental learning about prayer. Are you ready to hear a whole bunch of accounts in scripture about this? Here we go. Early in the Bible, Old Testament. If you wanted to meet face-to-face with God and have a conversation, you went to a tent or a building called the tabernacle. You went inside, you went behind a curtain, closed the curtain, and you met with God face-to-face. You went into a room and you closed the door. Daniel, later on, many of you know Daniel and the lion's den. During Daniel's time, there was a a ruler of that day that made a law that said, if you bow down or pray to anyone besides the ruler of the day, there were significant, serious consequences. Daniel, who was a follower of God at that time, does this, Daniel 6.10. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. 
Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Oh, I want to go on a tangent on this one. Daniel realizes that there was a law that was created he didn't like. Daniel did not go to the street corner and picket and scream and yell and try to be the loudest voice in the room and try to bash the rulers of the day. You know what he did? He realized that the kingdom that the law was created under was not the kingdom that he was supposed to connect to. There's a higher kingdom. And you connect to that higher kingdom by going into a room, shutting the door, and pray. And too often, this is a rant, too often today when we see something we don't like, the first thing we try to do is to be the loudest voice in the room and you're working in the wrong kingdom. There's a kingdom that's higher. Go there, pray. That's not in my notes. Elisha, man of God, prophet, people are coming to him. Because he's a man of God. People, someone came to him and said, my child has passed away. And so he goes and he does this, 2 Kings 4.32. When Elisha reached the house, there was the boy lying dead on his couch. He went in, shut the door on the two of them, which means there were two people in there. He put them out, shuts the door. And what does he do? Praise. Boy was raised from the dead. Matthew chapter 9, Jesus does the same thing. He goes to raise a child from the dead, puts people out, prays, and the child is restored. He goes to a secret place and prays. Mark 135, we read this earlier, very early in the morning. While it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Most, if not all, of the greatest moments in Scripture, where we love to hear the stories of the winds and the freedom and the healing, all of those, most all of those, were born out of a single moment earlier with someone going to a place to meet with God in prayer first. You can write this down. Many of our greatest moments with God happen behind closed doors. Many of our greatest moments with God happen behind closed doors. If I were you, because I want to rewrite this right now, I would scratch out the word happen and I'd write begin. Many of our greatest moments with God begin behind closed doors. Where we go to a, we go someplace and we close the door to the world. It's an invitation. It's it's like telling God, you know what, I want to sit here and I want to close the world out. We have so many open doors in our lives that are hurting our connection with God. I want to share a a story. A couple of months ago, a a gentleman came in during the week. He had never been to the church before, but he knew he needed prayer, and he passed us on the bypass a number of times. And when he came in, he he met with Ryan Cameron, who's on staff, and he described what was a little bit of what was going on in his life, and Ryan grabbed me, took him to my office, and we started to unpack what was going on in his life. And to the best of uh, my description, what I heard was, because he shared it in intimate detail, 
that he was seeing and hearing demons, the demonic realm. And he was so scared, even though he was not following Jesus now, he grew up going to church, he was so scared by what he was seeing and hearing, he had to, his soul was yearning for a connection with God. So he stops at a church, and he's like, okay, this is happening, what do I do? And we start to unpack, what are you, what's happening in your life? Let's get to the root of what's going on. And he shared two things, two huge open doors in his life. The first is, he was taking meth regularly. That's sad. The second, he was living with his girlfriend that was practicing witchcraft on a daily basis. I've not seen him at the church since, but I'm praying for him. I hope, man, that you're watching because here's the issue. When I told him, man, you gotta shut those doors. Those doors will stop a connection between you and God. You gotta close those. And he struggled with that. I don't know how. I don't know if I can. And we left him that day. Now, that is an extreme, extreme example of someone having open doors that hurt a connection with God. But I wonder, and you can fill this in, what doors do I have open that prevent a connection with God? What doors do I have open that prevent a connection with God? Is it social media? Is it friends and family? Is it your summer schedule? Is it your work schedule? Is it sleep? I, I don't know what it is for you, let me tell you what it is for me, just being transparent. I said earlier I like my time with God in the morning. But when I'm on my couch, I'm reading scripture, I'm praying, I have my cell phone two and a half feet away for reference purposes. Right? Oh, I read something and I'm like, oh, I want to know more about this verse or more about this word. So I'll grab my cell phone and I'll start looking. And I'm like, oh, I got four text messages. Let me respond. And 25 minutes later, I wonder if God is doing this. Like, really, Steve, I'm better than Google. Right? Those things can wait. I wonder how many times God. So my open door is my cell phone. What's yours? I want you to think of one. Here's what we're going to do before I get to the second thing I see. I'm going to pray for anyone who has a door open that you want to close that, that you really want help from God. If you do, just give me a little, I have an open door. So Father, I pray right now for those who are giving me the little sign that, yep, there's an open door. Would you help us? Help us, God, to close that door. Convict us when we want to open it, that it needs to be closed in the name of Jesus so we can have a powerful connection with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Rewarding prayer comes from closing a door. Second thing I see rewarding prayer comes from, you can write this in, a heart-to-heart conversation. A heart-to-heart conversation. Let me unpack it this way. Matthew chapter 6, close the door. Then Jesus says, pray to your Father who is unseen. Pray. There's a, maybe a couple hundred people in the room. If I were to ask each one of you, what does it mean to pray? 
you probably would describe prayer in a dozen different ways. And then many of you might ask a dozen different questions, right? We come from different upbringings, different backgrounds, different understandings of prayer. Are you supposed to start every prayer with our Father? Are you supposed to end it in Jesus' name? Can you pray with your eyes open? Are you supposed to recite the Lord's Prayer every time? Should I pray with a list or not? All those are great questions, valid prayers. But what I wanted to do in this series is I wanted to understand at a fundamental level what's Jesus trying to say. What does he mean by pray? So I did some research, and here's what I found. Pray. In some languages, there are several different terms used for prayer. For example, request for material blessing, pleas for spiritual help, intercession, which means I'm praying or asking on behalf of someone else. That's what that word means. Intercession for others, thanksgiving and praise. But it goes on and it says, prayer is the most generic expression of prayer may simply be to speak to God. It's normally best to avoid an expression which means primarily to recite. Wasn't that interesting? So the disciples ask, teach me how to pray. And I wonder, we don't know exactly. But I wonder when Jesus said, pray to your father, whether it was a connection for them who were praying memorized prayers that they had heard for life, whether it was a connection of pray out of relationship versus praying out of recitation of something you learned long ago. Those aren't bad, but he's looking for relationship. When I talk to my family and friends that I'm in relationship with, every conversation, every sentence isn't, can you get me this? I really need this. I I don't come to him on the same time every day. It's a connection throughout the day. I say different things. It's a conversation born out of relationship. You can write this down. My prayer life reflects my relationship with God. That's a convicting fill-in-the-blank for me. Prayer at its best is having a heart-to-heart conversation with the greatest father of all time. He's better than any earthly dad. And Jesus highlights how prayer and relationship are intertwined in Matthew chapter 7. Same Sermon on the Mount that he's giving. Just a chapter later, he says this, Which of you, if your sons ask for bread, will give them a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give them a snake? If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Out of relationship, God is prepared to answer your needs. I want to give an example for this point. About seven years ago, I have three boys about seven years ago, my boys wanted to play basketball at our house. And so I went out and I bought a basketball hoop that looks a lot like this. It's an adjustable height basketball hoop where you, uh, at the bottom, you can actually fill that bottom with water or sand. And you're, the reason you do that is so it doesn't tip over. Get it? 
Like that's the hoop. In our, and so we had a whole bunch of fun about seven years ago. And then about five or six years ago, during a windstorm, that basketball hoop, which cost me about 300, 350 bucks, uh, fell over into my van windshield. Smash, didn't crack it, smashed it. That basketball hoop now is really expensive. About three years ago, during a storm, the basketball hoop was up, and it had tipped over on the top of my son's car. Now it had happened twice. That basketball hoop is now expensive. Anybody remember the weather this last Monday? It was windy. My family was up. My son and daughter-in-law had come up from West Lafayette, parked in the driveway. We were eating, having fun. I needed to get something on the front porch, and so I, uh, I went out to the front porch, looked in the driveway, and saw this. Dang it. That now is the most expensive basketball hoop in the city of Mishawaka. I share that because as I was on the porch, it took the basketball hoop off the window, took a picture of it. I share that because an instant after I saw it, my initial reaction was, I will pay for that for my son. He did nothing wrong. I'll fix it. I went in and told my son, I said, hey, this thing happened. I'm, I'm really sorry. I will pay for it. As a matter of fact, it'll take us a couple of days to fix it. You can take my car for the week. No issue. I've got it. The, the next thing that happened, so, so we finish eating, right? We're joking around about it. They're getting ready to drive to West Lafayette. And my son asked me, hey, Dad, can I borrow the power washer? Now I had to think for a minute. Do I need it? But my reaction, yeah, you can take the power washer. If that's the response from a father and son who has a relationship out of love and he asks and I give, can you imagine what happens when we have a relationship with God the Father in heaven and we do the same thing and he sees the winds of life across our bow and he looks down and he says, you know what? I will fix that. I will fix that. And when we ask him out of relationship, God, this is a mess. I really need your help. And he looks down and he says, I love you. I will fix that. 1 John 5, 14, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Say according to his will. Do you know how we figure out what God's will is? We hang out with him. We do the very thing Jesus said to do first. We go to a room, we close the doors of the world, and we understand by reading scripture, by praying to him, figuring out what his will is. And it says this, and if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. He hears us. When we know his will and pray into that, he hears us and gives us those things according to his will. He rewards us, which is the exact thing Scripture says. Matthew chapter 6, Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. It seems so basic. But it's so powerful. Prayer. And so many of us need the reward that prayer promises. 
There is no substitute for prayer. I'm going to share that again. There is no substitute for prayer. I don't know how many things in your life you have tried to substitute for prayer when problems arise, when the winds of the world go across your bow. I don't know what it has been. I have a laundry list of things that I have tried that don't work in the long term. I don't know why, but God established one thing in its prayer to establish a connection with him in his kingdom. And he said, this is the thing that creates relationship and releases the rewards of heaven. There is no substitute. It's prayer. And my prayer has been for this series that we reignite or ignite a passion for the very thing God created for us to do. He wants to reward us. And rewarding prayer comes from closing the door in a heart-to-heart conversation. Before we close, there's a number of ways that we can interact in prayer during this series. And there's a slide that's going to come up on the screen ways that you can engage. We have prayer gatherings every Tuesday night. You can just come. It's in the auditorium. Figure out what we're doing. Just listen if you want to. We have a a fit class, a faith and training class on the prayers of Jesus. It's only two weeks. It's a great class. There's a prayer experience. You heard that uh, during the announcements. And if you have any questions in prayer, there is no dumb question regarding prayer. Email us, prayatthevineyard.org. I get those. I'll answer them. We'll answer them as a staff. Don't miss a message during this series. Why don't you stand? We're going to close. Thanks for listening to the Vineyard Church Weekly Message Podcast. We pray you were impacted by this message. God bless and see you next time.